When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fellow travelers, I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I write the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. And I'm Guy Winch. I wrote Emotional First Aid, and I write the Dear Guy column for TED. And this is Dear Therapists. This week, a man feels guilty that he isn't connecting enough with his mother in another country during COVID. Oh, and he's not just any fellow traveler. He's a special guest that you may already know. The roles reverse as we get older. And one of the things that I've noticed in that role reversal is there can be a lot of feelings of guilt. Listen in and maybe learn something about yourself in the process. Dear Therapists is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, mental health professional, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. By submitting a letter, you are agreeing to let iHeartMedia use it, in part or in full, and we may edit it for length and or clarity. Hey, Guy. Hey, Lori. So I'm really excited because today we're doing something a little bit different on Dear Therapists. We are still answering our listeners' questions, But we have a very special guest who's going to join us to do an episode of Speed Advice. Our guest is Jay Shetty. He's a friend of ours. And we asked him here specifically because, like us, his mission is to help people live better lives by becoming more aware of their emotional roadblocks. He has a new book out that we can't recommend highly enough. It is called Think Like a Monk. Spoiler alert, because he used to be a monk. And now here he is, sitting between two therapists. So, Jay, welcome to the show. (laughs) Guy, Laurie, thank you so much for that. This is, it almost sounds like one of those jokes, what do two therapists and a monk do in a bar? They give advice, they give advice. (laughs) It's awesome (laughs) to be with you both. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of both of your work. So glad uh, to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's our pleasure. We were talking about how in your book, you help people with the same kinds of issues that we do. Relationships, anxiety, self-sabotage. So normally on our show, people get two therapists giving advice. But today people are going to get two therapists and a former monk. And I just want to let people know that Think Like a Monk It's such a game changer. It has been a huge bestseller because it is resonating so widely with people who really want to find a way forward, which is what we like to do on the show. And that's why we're so happy to have Jay here as our special guest in answering these questions. And I I have a question for you, Jay. You were a college student, you were pursuing a degree in business, and then you decided to become a monk. And that's an unusual career shift. So I'm very curious, like people who knew you, close friends, how did they respond? Yeah, it's really interesting to go back and reflect on how people reacted to that decision, which was big, extreme, massively rebellious, completely against the grain. And my college friends were all shocked and surprised. I got everything from, you know, you're never going to get a job again, through to family and friends saying things like, Do you realize you're wasting all your parents' efforts at getting you a good education? This is a complete waste of your life and you're making the worst decision. And it's really interesting because the noise was really high, but a big part of thinking like a monk is being able to 
turn down the noise and, and tune in to your inner path and inner calling and inner voice. And I felt that that was really strong then. But the harder thing was when I actually came back from living as a monk three years later, they were like, we told you so. So that was almost harder because the noise that I came back to was, well, look, no one's going to give you a job now. You just wasted three years of your life. So actually coming back was somewhat harder than leaving. So when you came back, you wanted to share with people what you had learned because you felt like it wasn't about this person sitting on a mountaintop and being removed from the world. It was about how can we use all of this in very practical ways in our daily lives? You're this like young, cool guy. You're not what we think of when we think of a monk. So how did you think people would get your message or respond to your message? To be honest, I never even thought about it. I feel like when you've found something that's so valuable and so useful, you don't stop to ask yourself questions about whether someone's going to listen to you or not. If you come across something truly powerful, the last thing you're thinking about is, am I the right person or is this the right messenger? You just want to share it. Well, we are so excited to bring your wisdom to our listeners. So are you ready to take on some of their questions? <laughs> I don't know if I'll answer them as well as you and Guy, but I will definitely try my best. All right. I'm going to read the first one. They usually start, Dear Therapist. I'm going to skip that because now it's... Dear Therapist and a former monk. <laughs> <laughs> I am almost 40 years old and I have a successful career as an accountant working for multiple large corporations. In my search for another position, I realized that I really genuinely don't want to do anything related to tax or accounting. It really makes me feel sick just thinking about going back to that. I love interacting with people, talking about perspectives and emotions and talking about myself as well as to others about their stories and issues. The simple answer is to go back to school and get a degree in something else. However, that doesn't seem to be the answer for me as it brings up more questions and anxiety than answers. Can you help me? Thank you so much for the detailed question. It's great to have some of those subtle insights into your particular journey. I think it's really brave of you to acknowledge that something that you've invested in and done up until the age of 40 is something that you're not comfortable with. A lot of people never get to that stage because it's so hard to even admit to yourself that, hey, this thing that I've been investing in for maybe 20 years is not what I'm looking for. I think the key thing here is, first of all, to realize why doing tax still has value in your life. Often we look at things as binary, either it has value or it doesn't have value. So at one point, your current career had value, and now you almost feel like it has zero value. The truth is it still has some value. It may pay the bills, it may put food on the table, uh, it may take care of your family. So it still has some value. And allowing yourself to recognize that allows you to keep doing those things if that's still important to you, at the same time as exploring and experimenting with your curiosity. And so what I would suggest is that continuing in the work that you're doing right now to provide a foundation, unless you have the financial freedom to make a leap and take a risk and start exploring. And the second thing is looking into that curiosity. So when you start looking into your calling or your passion, it's important to recognize the difference between hobbies and your purpose or something that you're really meant to do. And so you may be missing hobbies or passions or interests that you may want to get back involved in. But the difference between that and another career path is what are you so passionate about that you're willing to invest in building your strengths, your skills, your expertise and your abilities. And so that exploration starts with courses. It starts with going to shadow people that you maybe not have spent time with. You may listen to podcasts and hear about people in those career paths. This is a great time to allow your mind the openness to explore this new path, but do it in a way that feels safe and comfortable as well. Allowing yourself to test courses, shadowing people, hearing from people who are doing career paths that you're fascinated by is a great way of starting that initial research. I love what you said about things not being binary, because I think that so often what happens is people are doing something and they feel like there's something better out there. And the thing that they're doing becomes horrible. It makes it really hard to hold on to the fact that the other thing isn't 100% great. And the thing that you're doing isn't 100% bad. And so it gives you that perspective. And it also gives you more freedom to explore. So it's not like the desperation of, I have to get out of this thing this second, where he said, it makes me sick to go back to this, right? The reason this person gave for not wanting to go back to school or do something else was the uncertainty. And it wasn't like you have to jump into a graduate program because you don't know what you want to do yet. 
Exactly what you said, Jay. It's a time to explore and to be able to sit with the uncertainty. Uncertainty is an opportunity because it opens up all of these possibilities. I agree with both of you. We often make the mistake of thinking we actually have to replace instead of add. Change this and switch it out when maybe you just need to add a component to your life that would make everything else seem more worthwhile and working better. So figure out what it is you can add. And you might find in that exploration, actually, you're fine with going back to what you did because the combination of the two is sufficient. Let's move on to our, to our next letter. And this one is about an affair and letting go. And it goes like this. When I was in college, I had an affair with a professor 12 years my senior that lasted for four years. He wasn't married, but he had a steady girlfriend with whom he lived. It's the typical story where I fell deeply in love and I believed with all my heart that he was going to leave her, but he always found an excuse not to. When I realized that I was caught in a cliche that hardly ever ends well, I found the courage to break up with him. But when I did, he uttered the words, you meant nothing to me. It was the last time we spoke. And here I am seven years later, even though I don't have any romantic feelings for him anymore, I still can't get over those words. They still hurt. For me, those four years meant so much. There was a lot of emotional intimacy. We talked daily. He was often the first person I would hear from every morning. And for hours, he would confide in me, making me feel special, encouraging, and advising me. But now, because of those words, every time I think of my college years, I feel sad and naive. And even though I really would like to know if he meant them or not, the last thing I want to do is contact him and ask him. I guess what I really want to know is if a person can fake so much care and attention and for so many years just to sleep with me. So, Jay, <laughs> what do you think about that one? Yeah, thank you for your courage and sharing that with us. A lot of the time we look to gain closure from other people. We look to gain answers and reasons for something from the other person. But often the other person is not physically accessible or emotionally mature enough to have that conversation. It's really important that we provide that closure and the answers and the reasons to ourselves through our own reflection of what we've experienced and what we've been through. When you look at the scenario that you've painted there and the person saying those words, those words are probably shared in pain and spite from their side and not a reflection of you or what you gave to the relationship or what you committed, but more of a reflection of the state of mind they were in. You stood up for what was right for you. You stood up for what you thought uh, was the best way forward. And if that's something that someone couldn't understand or someone couldn't respect or respond to in a positive way, then you can be pretty sure that you made the right decision to move on. But I would suggest that you allow yourself to reflect on the situation and find the closure. Recognize that final statement had very little to do with you and more to do with how that person felt at the time. It's interesting, Jay, because what's confusing her is that he was 12 years her senior. He was the professor. He was the one she expected was the adult. And so if he said it, he must have meant it. But he actually wasn't responding as an adult. He was responding as a child. He was lashing out because his feelings were hurt, which kind of implies that he actually did care. People can be in a relationship in a big age difference, and sometimes it's the younger one that's the more matured. And so they keep taking, you know, what the older person is saying too much to heart. And I think it's so true that when people are hurt, they say hurtful things. And we sometimes forget that we personalize what they say. We take it at face value when they're just responding from this place of deep woundedness. This is a person who clearly cared about her because if he didn't care about her, he wouldn't have been so wounded. And I think that we have to go back to what you said, Jay, and what you're saying, Guy, too, about, you know, we all have this place of knowing inside of us. And she knew at the time, this is not right. This is not healthy for me. This is not a reciprocal relationship. And she knows that now. But the problem is that those words are just imprinted in her mind. And she's not going to that place of knowing that I knew this wasn't right for me. I knew he didn't have my interests in mind. I think that's going to be really important for her to hold on to, that I know what's right for me. I know what's healthy for me. And this, even ruminating about this, is not healthy for me. You're listening to Dear Therapist from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dear Therapist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Dear Therapist. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lori Gottlieb. And I'm Guy Winch. And this is Dear Therapists. Our next one is about boundaries. I have a mother who has severe depression. Although I don't live with her, she calls me often being negative, down, and crying. I tried to help her in the past by talking to her, listening, suggesting things she can do, and every time she would find an excuse not to help herself. I'm at the point that I struggle myself with my anxiety, which results in not wanting to speak to her as I don't want to feel more down. She thinks I'm selfish. How can I deal with my mother without feeling guilty? Yeah, our parents, they're our superheroes and they uh, make everything happen. And then often the roles reverse as we get older and they start looking to us for inspiration or motivations or guidance or resources or whatever it may be. And one of the things that I've noticed in that role reversal is there can be a lot of feelings of guilt and a lot of feelings of not being able to reciprocate or respond with the love or the support we may have received growing up. And that can be a really tough situation to be in. And what I've seen has helped many people is recognizing that sometimes it's not us that our parents need. It's introducing them to different insights, teachers, books, resources that can help them and providing them with a community, a group of friends, encouraging other people to partake in their life encouraging them to connect with other people in their lives. It's not the easy way out. It's actually the sustainable way for them to also move forward is by not making them fully dependent on you. And sometimes we can feel that someone's fully dependent on us because we're allowing them to only depend on us for that joy or their happiness or whatever it may be. So allowing that person to find a community, helping them find that community, helping them find that next step for them it's a patient process. I think so many people are caught in what you're talking about, Jay, where they feel like, I know how I can help my parent, meaning I can refer them to a therapist. I can give them this book because they're grieving. What happens is we aren't able to have a boundary. We feel like that somehow it's selfish 
to set a boundary. And the problem is that negativity is so contagious. And you talk about this in your book, Jay, where the most contagious thing in a household is anxiety, negativity. And if somebody doesn't have that under control, it affects everybody around them. And so it's not being selfish to be able to say to your parent, I love you so much and I don't want to see you struggle so much. I am not the person who can help you through this in the most effective way, but I'll help you find a therapist or I'll send you some books on this or whatever it is, that there are other ways that you can be there and be helpful that are actually more helpful than you're having these conversations all the time that go nowhere. I think it's fair when you have a parent who's really depressed and you have to do this lifting from afar to say to them, look, I understand you're depressed and I understand it's very difficult. I want to be there for you, but I can't be there to the point that I start feel like I'm drowning as well. So I want us to talk about how we can make our conversations a little more balanced. I'm happy to listen at the beginning to what's going on. And at that point, she should be providing emotional validation rather than advice necessarily. But then to pivot and say, and now I want to tell you a little bit about me and let's see if I can brighten your day by talking about me a little bit. So there's a little bit of a balance there between the positivity and the negativity and to come to a contract with her mom, to an agreement that that's what we're going to do. We're going to have elements of both. I'm learning so much. I love hearing you both. This is fantastic. It's so interesting to hear the overlap between how we as therapists approach something and how you approach something with the teachings from your work. And this is why I think your book is so timely, Jay, because over the past 10, 20 years, there's been a real influx of Eastern thinking into Western psychotherapy in a way that makes us all richer for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Our next letter, in fact, I think is something you talk about too in your book. It's about this idea of revenge and why that's not helpful for us. And here's how the letter goes. Dear therapist and a monk, it has been a year I was engaged and he wanted to marry. After one visit from his daughter, he sent me a WhatsApp message saying he could not leave his old life and start a new life. He put a photo of him and his daughter hugging each other. I was mad broke the contact immediately, and now I want revenge. Is that a good thing to do? We think this is a very quick letter. We, we know that the answer is no, <laughs> but, but, but we want to give a quick explanation as to why. Yeah, it, I, I think we all agree that it doesn't matter what the question is, revenge is not the answer. I was just thinking about it out loud of just like, yeah, I was trying to think when, when would I agree that revenge is the answer and I, and I can't seem to find a, a reason. And so I think it's important to explain why revenge is never the answer because revenge places the control and validation of your joy, happiness and success into someone else's hands. So if you now want to take revenge, the only way your revenge will be satisfied is if that person feels pain. Chances are they may actually feel absolutely fine. And so now you've gone on this whole journey to get a response from this individual that may not give you the response you want. And so revenge as a concept in and of itself is flawed because it has no guarantee and it doesn't make you feel a sense of safety or security or improve your self-worth. The key thing here is to reflect on what you feel about you was lost or affected in this situation that happened. What was it about this situation that makes you want to take revenge? Where was your ego hurt? And then creating a plan of action. There's some part of you that doesn't feel uh, as positive about you anymore. And that means that putting some light on it and working on it and helping yourself develop that self-confidence, that self-esteem, whatever it may be that may have been lost due to this scenario is really where your focus should go. And that's going to make you more attractive internally and externally to anyone in, in the future, as opposed to trying to get that person's validation from the past. Yeah, I'll, I'll add one thing that, you know, given Please. the suddenness of this, you might this person might do some work on looking back and seeing what they might have missed. This is a big abrupt about face. There are probably signs there and it may be worthwhile to start looking at those and seeing what other indications of this there were, whether you swept them under the rug, compromised too much, missed them, what have you. There's a lot of learning that can be done here and there's no learning that you get from revenge, none. 
Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of that letter we talked about earlier, where the actions of somebody else are sitting with you, but the other person isn't feeling it. The other person looms so large in your mind, but they're in a different place. And so just to even be able to have a better perspective on, wait a minute, this person broke up with me on WhatsApp, <laughs> right? With no conversation, no respect of a face-to-face -face conversation, no warning, no indication, or maybe there were some indications that, that this person missed. But, but the fact is this person treated her with a complete lack of regard. And it's funny when people treat us with a complete lack of regard, sometimes people say, oh, but I, I, I love this person. I want to be with this person. And I want to say to them, do you really, do you really want to be with someone who would treat you like that? And so I think the better use of her time and her emotional real estate is to say, wait a minute, I need to be clear on the kind of person I want to be with. This is a wake up call for me because clearly this is not the kind of person that I want to be with. I don't want to spend my time thinking about how I can get back at him because it's not going to help me in any way. I want to think about helping myself move forward. Laurie and Guy, I think this is an interesting topic that I'd love to pick your brains on. We've heard two examples now of relationships that started with a bit of baggage or when things weren't necessarily transparent or clear to some degree. So we had the scenario of dating someone who has a long-term girlfriend and being aware, or maybe we're still married or maybe not. But the point I'm making is if a relationship starts with a lack of transparency, what do studies and research show about relationships like that and how they usually pan out? You know, if you get honesty from someone three months in or you know about someone, but you think they're going to change and we're hoping that they're going to leave their partner. How does that factor into our decision making when we actually get into a relationship? Are we setting ourselves up to fail? So that's a really important question. And the way I think about it is that relationship dynamics are like cement. When the cement is wet at the beginning, you can mold it, you can make changes, you can shift things around, shape it. But the minute it hardens, it's very difficult to mold. Now you have to take a hammer and a chisel to it. And it hardens really quickly. There's an unspoken contract we enter when we're starting to date someone in which we're communicating non-verbally that if I'm not calling you on something, it must be okay with me. If I'm not bringing up something or trying to change something, I'm agreeing to it tacitly. So we have to pay incredible attention in the early stages. And I mean early as in first 10, 15 dates, because everything you're accepting then, and you're accepting it if you're not voicing that you're not, you are kind of signing on for in the long term. So to say, oh no, I'll address that later is a mistake. The cement will be dry. It'll be much, much harder. You have to pay a lot of attention very early. Yeah. And I also feel like at the very beginning, trust is being established. People think, well, I don't want to tell my new partner about this thing because they probably won't like it. So I'm going to wait until they already are into me and then I'll reveal this. And that is so dangerous because what happens is the person is now into you and now you're going to tell them something that they were not expecting. And then all of a sudden there is this damage done to the trust. So you want to start building trust from the very beginning. If the person is going to want to be with you, you want to tell them those things early on because they will appreciate that. If, if it's going to work out, it's going to work out. And if it's not going to work out, it's not going to be any better when you tell them three months or three years down the line. It's actually going to be far worse. That's great advice. So it sounds like this person he had kids and he was very torn between what was going on with the kids and whether he can be in a relationship or get married again. And he wasn't telling her about that. And, and then it comes out and it seems like this thing out of the blue, but for him, it might not have been out of the blue at all. For him, he might've been thinking about this from the very beginning, but he felt like, oh, I'll just work it out myself in my head. Not good. I want to suggest this to our listeners. I'm going to read the next letter, but I want you when I'm done to pause and think of how you would respond to it, given what we just said, because it's a similar scenario. So let's see what you got from that and how you might apply it to the following. I mean, you can cheat and just listen to what we say, but I'm suggesting it might be fun to maybe see what you would say to this letter. All right, here it is. 
I've been dating my boyfriend for close to three years, and the relationship is very healthy. We have talked about marriage and are both divorced with children. Last month, during a heated discussion, it came out that he does not want to remarry, doesn't know if he can live with someone else, he has been divorced 13 years, me three, and plans to buy a beach house by himself and for himself in the near future. This was news to me, as we have looked at rings and talked about a future together often. My quandary is that we are very happy together, and he's a wonderful partner. Do I hang in, knowing the relationship may never lead to marriage, or walk away and pursue the unknown? Thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry to hear that. It's never great when expectations change, especially as it sounds like to me that they were set or at least spoken about openly for three years. And then for someone to change how they feel about something is definitely not pleasant to be on the receiving end of, especially if you were sure of it. For me, if you feel that the relationship is good and that's what I'm hearing, I think it's really important to not have a heated, but have a cool discussion about why that person has changed the way they feel. If you've looked at rings, if you've talked about marriage, what's happened in that person's life in their mind that they haven't shared with you? Because if you say the relationship's healthy, then a sign of a healthy relationship is that person being able to tell you why their decision has changed, what they feel is their new priority, and how they still feel about you. The next step based on their answer will be where you can decide whether this is an investment in a relationship that you still want to continue to do, or whether it's a relationship that you don't want to invest in anymore because you're seeing that you have misaligned goals. And the third and final thing you want to question for yourself too is what did marriage mean to you? Uh, I think it's really important to define what marriage is, what the role of a husband is, a wife is, a partner is, because I think often we also aren't fully aware of why we want to get married. And we've not really expressed that to the other person either. So I think defining why marriage is important or why living together is important and what it means to you will help you actually have the discussion that will be a very clarifying conversation. Yeah. And so often people want to react and just make a decision. Well, if he's going to do this, then there are two things that can happen. We can break up or we can stay together and I'll be resentful. Right. And that's sort of how it's positioned. Whereas I love your advice, which is very much how Guy and I think about things, which is what's the why under this? What happened? You know, sometimes we say we're in a healthy relationship, but we're not that curious about our partner's inner life. We feel so wounded. We feel so hurt that we don't make the space to say, I wonder what's going on with him. I want to understand him better. And I also want him to understand my inner world. And so can we have that kind of conversation? She says he's going to buy a beach house and live by himself. So what's going on there with him? What does that mean? And I can see how this conversation can go very badly if she's angry and says, what do you mean you're doing that? Don't you love me? As opposed to, I'm really confused about this. We were ring shopping but you're also saying now you don't want to get married and you want to live by yourself. Help me understand what's going on with you. And that will help me to make choices about my life too. But I don't think she can make a good choice until she understands what is going on with him. He understands what's going on with her. And then they can both have this sort of come to Jesus moment with themselves respectively about what do we want from each other? I, I think you're both right on. And I think the one concern I would have for this person is that she seems to be a little bit reluctant to look under the bed at the monsters. In other words, when she's opening by saying, we have a really healthy relationship, this and this and this happened, but we are really happy together. He's a wonderful partner. A, you're not really happy together because if he were, then he wouldn't be planning to get a beach house without you or telling you he doesn't want to get married. And same goes to the health of the relationship. He's making unilateral moves as he's making partnering moves with you. So he's getting a ring, but he's buying the beach house and telling you that. So there's a little bit of denial there about perhaps the issues here, and maybe she's not asking because she doesn't want to find out. But she needs to find out clearly at this point. She needs to really be brave and say, let's talk about how you see things moving forward. I think that those last two letters were very similar in that way about the denial part. What what were you missing? What were you not looking at? And we do that to protect ourselves. But as we can see, it doesn't really protect us, ultimately. 
it's almost a form of self-sabotage when you think about it. And our next letter is directly about self-sabotage. And lots of people deal with these self-sabotaging patterns in relationships. And that's what this letter is about. It goes like this. Over the years, I have become pretty familiar and well aware of my own relational patterns and picked up some insight as to why I do the things that I do, and most notably, the kinds of people I pursue when it comes to relationships. Even so, I still find myself falling into the same self-sabotaging patterns. Most recently, I am ashamed to say, I found myself getting involved for the second time with a man who is in a committed relationship with another woman. This was a person I had worked really hard to distance myself from and had successfully been out of contact with for over a year. I know how harmful my actions are for all parties involved, but somehow I find myself creating creative ways to rationalize my behavior. I often find myself wondering what it will take for me to translate all of this insight I have developed into actually doing something different. What needs to happen to translate insight into action? Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of awareness here of that mistake that you're getting involved in this situation and repeating a pattern that you don't think is healthy for you. The second step to turn that insight into action, I would really write down and become aware when you're at your lowest point in these scenarios, I would voice note to yourself or record or write down how you feel. Because what ends up happening is that our minds end up forgetting all of these challenges and pains in the pattern that comes with these bad mistakes that we make. And so I think it's really important that you allow yourself to truly face how complicated, confusing, and challenging the situation is when you get involved with someone who's already in a relationship. And it sounds like you've experienced that before. Allow yourself to really process how challenging it was in the past, how challenging it was now, because that's going to be your first step in turning insight into action. The second thing is look at who and where you meet people, because you're going to find patterns in that as well. It's not only patterns in the people that you choose to be with, but patterns in the way you come across people and find people. And maybe there's even some parts of your circle or parts of your habits that you need to change in order to change this part of your life. It may be where you socialize, who you socialize with, who you spend time with. All of that is going to introduce you to a new kind of human, a new kind of person that actually may be healthier and better for you. And the third and final thing is allow yourself to set yourself a rule and a boundary that you stand by of noticing the red flags of when you start seeing yourself go down that way. So when you start seeing yourself go down that lane, have a list of three red flags that you remember that you don't want to take again. That's how you would start turning insight into action. I I always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world. You can come to therapy every week and say, now I understand my pattern. I go after these kinds of people. This is what I do. But if you don't make changes, if you don't take action, the insight is useless. And I think that what's great about this letter is this person realizes it's not just my awareness. It's that I need to do something different. And I love your suggestions about something concrete that this person can do. So when people come to therapy and they'll, they'll say, you know, now I understand why I got into that argument again with my partner. And I'll say, well, did you do something different? And they'll say, well, no, but I understand why. <laughs> but they get into that same argument every weekend. Why are you not doing? Doing something different? What is keeping you from doing so? How does it serve you? And I think that what she needs to ask herself, which is what I ask therapy patients all the time, is if you're not taking action, how does it serve you not to take action? And so how is it serving you right now to go after these things that are not satisfying for you? Is it because you don't truly believe that you can have something that would be more satisfying to you? Is it because it feels safer to you? Is it because it feels more comforting and familiar to you, even though you're miserable in it? What is it about that? And once you can figure out what that roadblock is, you can start to do something differently. I I really wish this person luck. And I think they're almost there in terms of saying, I need to employ these strategies so that I can do something differently. You're listening to Dear Therapists from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a quick break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Guy, we have one final letter, and it goes like this. I have not been able to see my mom for nearly a year now because of the pandemic. She's eight hours ahead in time zone, so it's tough to talk to her a lot as she's asleep by the time I have some free time. I call her as much as I can, but I don't know how to make sure she feels loved and cared for without seeing her. I want her to know how much she means to me. I also worry about her safety, etc., I think you and I should tackle that one first. Let's go first and then we can give it to Jay. Okay, great. So there's so many people in this situation who have not seen parents for a long, long time and they're worried about them and they think about them. They talk on the phone and they keep up, but they're used to seeing their parents much more frequently. And and so I think it's so difficult. And the letter writer is concerned that the mother doesn't know how much she means to him and, and how much he thinks of her. And I think that might be her concern, but it's his guilt. It's his worry. And I think that's what's generating some of this. So I think there needs to be a way where he can remind both parties about how much he thinks of her, how much he loves her. Yeah, what, I, what I'm not hearing in the letter is that the mother is the person who is making the person feel guilty. What I'm hearing is that this person just has so much love for his mother. That's what came across to me was how much love he has and how sometimes we love somebody so much, but often think of all of our relationships. Do we really show it? And are we sure that we're really showing it? And what can we be doing to make sure that we're getting that across? And so I think this is really less a letter about him not being a good son, because I think he probably is a good son. I think it's more about, is he communicating how he feels to someone that he cares so much about? And so we actually have some advice for this person that we want him to try because he is right here. This is actually a letter (laughs) from Jay Shetty to us. So, Jay, we want to give you a little bit of advice to to take home with you. I need it. I want to test it out. Like, yeah, and you're going to test it out like everybody does on our show. And then you'll let us know how it went. So, Guy, do you want to go ahead and and, uh, give him some of our thoughts? Sure. So we would like you for the next week, every time you think of your mom, whether it's fondness, worry, love, whatever it is, make a note in your phone. We don't want you to text her in the moment because we don't know if she's one of those parents that sleeps with the phone by her pillow. We don't want you to wake her up in the middle of the night, but we'd like you to make a list. Every time you have that thought, it can be twice in the morning, whatever it is, and just what the thought was and what the feeling was. And then we would like you to, at the end of the week, send her a letter or a text in which you say, Mom, I was wondering how often I think about you and I miss you during the week. So I decided to write it down and I'm sending you my diary of the week of mum thoughts. I think it would be a nice thing for her to see how many of those there are. 
I love that. That's such a great idea. I love that. Absolutely love that. And we think the other purpose of this is that we actually believe that your mom knows how much you love her, but that sometimes it's important for us to make sure for our own peace of mind that we have communicated that directly. And so this is just a gesture that you can do. This wouldn't be something you would do every week. It's just a one-time thing to say, wow, for you to notice, whoa, you know what? I really, I love her so much. I do think about her a lot. And then also to be able to say, and I want you to know, mom, these are the times that I thought about you. And, and this happens all the time. This happens every week. I'm just going to show you this week. But this happens all the time. And I don't know if I communicated that to you. I think she will be so touched by that. And I think that for you, it will reassure you that you don't need to be thinking about the person every minute or calling them every minute. It's the fact that there is this strong bond between you and that now I want to make sure I've told her. And now you've told her. Yeah, yeah I love that. Thank you both. That's, I'm definitely going to try that out. I actually really love the sound of that. I love how practical it is. And, and I can definitely see why that's different to just saying I love you. Or, or, you know, just sharing it, which which I do often, but I can totally see why this is going to be a lot more meaningful. So thank you so much. I, I love this idea and uh, I can't wait to try it out, honestly. There's this phrase that we have in therapy of being kept in mind that, you know, a lot of people go to therapy and they wonder, does my therapist think about me during the week? Am I kept in mind? <laughs> people think about that with their romantic partners or with their close friends or with their parents or with their children. Am I kept in mind? So there's something just so beautiful about communicating mm -hmm. to your mom that she is kept in mind. Mm -hmm. And we would, we would love for you to, when you send this to her, send us a voicemail. Let us know how that went and how it made you feel while you were doing it and how she responded. Awesome. I definitely will. Yeah, 100%. I can't wait to see how she responds. Great. Well, we, we thank you so much for being our guest today and helping answer all of these listener questions. And I really want to encourage everybody to check out Jay's book, Think Like a Monk, because it has so much wisdom in it, so much of which was interwoven into the answers that Jay gave today and that even we as therapists give all the time. You're both very kind. And I want to thank you. I love this format. I think it's such a great podcast. I've, I've enjoyed being with both of you. And I've read both your books too, so I can't stop saying enough incredible things about both of them. But in regards to what you were just sharing right now, I think it's amazing that we're all able to collaborate together in this way to serve and help other people. I took so many notes while both of you were talking. So I would encourage everyone to go back and take some notes too and listen to it because as uh, Laurie was pointing out, you know, insight into action is such a important part and taking notes is a part of that like the insight needs to really go deep for us to take an action on it and so for me i was taking notes while guy and laurie were speaking and i found it extremely beneficial even in my perspectives and you saw me asking questions and so i hope you feel encouraged to ask questions as well and continue learning from both these incredible powerhouses of insight and information so thank you guy and thank you laurie for having me this was wonderful oh thank you so much jay and we look forward to hearing how the advice went for you So, Guy, we heard back from Jay. It's interesting because he was both the advice giver and the advice seeker in this episode. Hey, Laurie. Hey, Guy. It's so great to talk to you again. I hope you're well. And hello to all the listeners of the Dear Therapist podcast. This is Jay Shetty. I'm so glad I tried out the advice of keeping the journal every time I think about my mom, whether it's something big or small, and then sending it to her because it was so fun to see her reaction, to see all the little times I think about it, whether I'm outside and I see a Diwali decoration, it's been uh, holiday time for us at the moment. And that made me remember my mom and the sweets that she would make at home and the different festivities and the rituals that we would do. And of course, it's coming up close to Christmas time. So I've been thinking a lot about the advent calendar should get me as a kid as I walk around. So being able to just write down those small moments, even though those aren't moments in which I'd call my mom about that one thing, it's been really wonderful to see how that went and how she experienced it. She was so happy to see that I remember so much. And I think that was the key thing about this activity, that what it did is that it prompted very natural, organic memories. And sharing memories with someone who loves us 
is a beautiful way of telling them we love them and how much we value them because it shows we remember something special they did for us. So it acts as a way of creating gratitude. So thank you both again. I'm really glad I got to do this. Hope this helps everyone who's listening. Bye. So we get the response from Jay, who himself gives so much advice, and then he tells us what happened, and he tells us how he felt about it, and then he analyzes it. So I guess we're done. We don't have to do much here. He did it all for us. Yeah, we kind of are done. But I want to add one thing to it, which is that I think sometimes we don't realize how important we are to other people and how important other people are to us. And I think what was beautiful about what he did, and he really embraced the assignment, was he noticed how much his mother comes into his mind in, in really positive ways. And I think sometimes we don't take the time to notice. And I think the assignment forced him to slow down a little bit and to notice those moments and then to be able to share those moments. People feel like, well, I have to call my mom or I have to call my dad and it's such a stressor because it doesn't feel organic. But when you notice the organic ways in which they're meaningful to you, and then you can share that with them, I think it's a very different kind of interaction. And I hope that our listeners can incorporate this into their own lives. And I have to say in this upcoming holiday season and in general, this is a great gift to give someone that you care about to just keep that journal. And the gift is, here's how often and in what ways I think about you that you don't know about. I just think it's something that could be used very broadly. It's a gift that keeps on giving because it's not just how the person feels in the moment when they receive it, but that's going to stay with them for a long time. Hey, fellow travelers, if you've used any of our advice from the podcast in your own life, send us a quick voice memo to Laurie and Guy at iHeartMedia.com and tell us about it. We may include it in a future show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review it. You can follow us both online. I'm at LaurieGottlieb.com and you can follow me on Twitter at LaurieGottlieb1 or on Instagram at LaurieGottlieb underscore author. And I'm at GuyWinch.com. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at Guy Winch. If you have a dilemma you'd like to discuss with us, big or small, email us at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. We're produced and edited by Mike Johns. Special thanks to Samuel Benefield and to our podcast fairy godmother, Katie Couric. And next week, a woman tries to forge a relationship with the younger brother she wasn't very nice to when they were children. It's very emotional to say that, yes, I was awful to have said that I wish you weren't born, you know, to a little kid like that. And I have said that I'm sorry. Dear Therapist is a production of iHeartRadio. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.